Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The message, be concerned, but not too concerned. The lead starts right now. Top U.S. public health experts lay out what we do and still do not know about the new coronavirus variant as we learn new details from the very first patients. First on CNN, Donald Trump's chief of staff is now cooperating with insurrection investigators. What does he know? Plus, as one recovering addict described it, it actually fries your brain. A close look at the surge of meth in America through the eyes of a man who got hooked at the age of 11. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Dana Bash in for Jake Tapper. And we start today with the health lead and new confirmed cases of the Omicron COVID variant with U.S. health officials racing to ramp up vaccinations and testing before a case is detected in the United States. 20 nations have now identified cases of this new strain, and it continues to have an impact on the global economy. Moments ago, the Dow finished the day's trading down more than 600 points after the Moderna CEO said the vaccines may not have the same amount of protection against the Omicron variant. But there is so much we don't know about its mysterious mutations, like how dangerous is it? How easily can it spread as scientists race to learn more and countries cut off travel from South Africa, where the variant was first discovered? A doctor there told CNN the world's response has been an overreaction. CNN's Nick Watt starts our coverage. The question is when, not if, the Omicron variant reaches the United States could already be here. Among the first to study Omicron? This guy. It looks like a problem, but we don't know to what extent it's going to be a problem. Um, I wouldn't at this point uh, say that this is hugely different from stuff we've seen before. I think we'll get some information on transmissibility and severity in the coming days, maybe a week or two. I do think it will take some time for us to get a better understanding of the impact on vaccines. Our estimate is between two and four weeks. Here's what we already know about Omicron's mutations. These mutations have been associated with increased transmissibility and immune evasion. So will vaccines work as well as they did against the Delta variant? There is no world, I think, where the effectiveness is the same level, Moderna's CEO told the Financial Times. If Omicron does indeed diminish protection from vaccines? Boosters should reduce dramatically the gap. CDC guidance was that all adults may get boosters. Now, says the CDC, they should. Are lockdowns off the table? Yes, for now. Why is that? Well, because we're able to, if people are vaccinated and wear their masks, there's no need for the lockdown. This variant was first detected in southern Africa, now dominant down there. What we are, are presenting to primary healthcare practitioners are extremely mild cases, so mild to moderate. So these patients... They don't need to be hospitalized for now. Most of those are among younger individuals. We believe that it is too soon to tell 
of what the level of severity is. And remember, this will likely not be the last coronavirus variant. Omicron is like a wake-up call, as though we needed another wake-up call to vaccinate the world. One of the best ways to keep Americans safe is actually to vaccinate the world. Because the more the virus spreads, the more it mutates. China has promised to send another billion vaccine doses to Africa. Italy calling on wealthy countries to not just dish out doses, but actually help getting them into arms. And the CDC is now stepping up surveillance at four of our busiest international airports, JFK, Newark, Atlanta and San Francisco. They'll be testing more people coming from specific areas of the world. The CDC is also now going to analyze one in seven of all positive tests looking for variants. Dana. Nick Watt, thank you so much for that report. I want to bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Dr. Gupta, thank you so yeah. much for joining me. So in today's briefing, Dr. Anthony Fauci laid out all the things that we don't know about the Omicron variant, including whether it can evade the vaccine. So given that, can you explain to our viewers why it is so important to get the shot? Well, uh, th there's, there's pretty clear evidence, I think, if you look at some of the early data from South Africa, that the vaccines do, present some, do provide some protection. Uh, South Africa is a country of about 60 million people. About 16 million people have been vaccinated. And what they're finding is the people who are showing up positive with this new variant are almost all unvaccinated. So that's, that's a data point that I think they're going to pay attention to and, a, and a, another uh, reason that people should get this shot. But I want to show you something else here. If you sort of track the trajectory of the pandemic through South Africa since the beginning, starting with the original variant, look, look at what happens here. This is a country that's largely been unvaccinated, Dana. They didn't even start vaccinating until February of this year. They have the surge. They get a lot of infection immunity. It comes down. But look, look about three, four months later, you get another variant and another surge, which tells you two things, that infection-acquired immunity isn't lasting very long but that the vaccines are providing more protection. Mm. This is an interesting snapshot of this big question that people keep asking. Vaccine immunity versus infection-acquired immunity. South Africa teaches us an important lesson here. You should get vaccinated because the durability and the infection-acquired immunity doesn't last that long. That is so fascinating. That graphic really helped explain it. Uh, I want to ask about testing. Yeah. Uh, the CDC director called COVID testing in the U.S. robust. So given that, does it surprise you that none of those tests so far have shown that the variant is here in the U.S. yet? It does surprise me a bit. I mean, this is, this is one of those things. Our surveillance testing is, is certainly better than it was. And as Nick just mentioned, about a seventh of positive tests are the, then going and getting their genomic sequence done to figure out which variant it is specifically. I think it's you know, pretty clear that it's here, Omicron, and no one should be surprised when we report that, which my guess is will be within the next couple of days. I think what happened, Dana, is that over the summer, we just kind of stopped testing, right? Mm -hmm. We had a real lull in testing. We talked a lot about this idea of having plenty of home tests. They are more available now, but I think people have not been using them as much as they could. Antigen tests, Dana, are, are good for answering the question people are really often trying to ask which isn't, do I have the virus in my body? The question they're asking is, am I contagious? I feel fine, but am I possibly contagious? Because we know people without symptoms can spread. Those antigen tests can do a great job of answering that question. People can buy them in stores. I, I've been buying them 
going into the cooler, drier months, have them at home. And uh, it's a good way to just be sure. Admiral Dr. Brett Girard was the COVID testing czar for Trump's COVID task force. And like a lot of other health experts, he's really stressing the unknown of this variant that is so concerning. Listen to what he said. We really don't know how Omicron is going to affect the elderly or those who have chronic conditions. So um, we have no evidence that it's worse, but I don't want people to assume that it's just mild and we can blow this off. Sanjay, it really feels like public health officials right now are damned if they do and damned if they don't. They're trying to warn people, Hmm. but not freak them out. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing the scientific process unfold real time. I mean, people, as far as hearing this information, they often hear it when we have a lot more of these details sort of nailed down. But such has been the nature of this pandemic. We're all sort of learning this together. I I can tell you, I've been going deep into the data in South Africa, specifically in Gwatang province, uh, which is where Johannesburg is located. And I want to show you uh, what's been happening with hospitalizations over there. And I think this is something that probably has got the admiral's attention, other people's attention as well. Over the last three weeks, uh, the numbers have gone up significantly, you know, close to quadrupled in terms of hospitalizations. Now, Dana, it's sort of late spring over there in terms of climate. So it's past flu season. It's getting warmer. Typically, hospitalizations are going down. They've been going up. Is this related to this new variant, Omicron? We, we don't know for sure. But this could be the sort of thing that uh, gives people little concern. If hospitalizations are going up, is there a population of people who are you know, more vulnerable? And uh, my guess is there is, just like we've seen. And that's the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions. But we should know more within the next couple of weeks on that. Yeah. And even looking at that remarkable climb, what you said earlier is important to keep in mind that most people in South Africa are not vaccinated Uh, which is a reminder, get your shot, get your booster. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, always good to talk to you. Thank you. You too, Dana. Thank you. And two Republican congresswomen are hurling insults at one another, including some coded emojis. Plus, breaking this afternoon, another school shooting, this one in Michigan, and all three of those killed are believed to be students. Breaking in our national lead, a high school shooting, leaving three dead, all believed to be students. The gunfire erupted this afternoon at a school just north of Detroit in Oxford, Michigan. CNN's Alexandra Field is following the breaking news. Alexandra, you're getting new details on the suspected shooter. Uh, He's believed to have acted alone, and police are saying that he is a 15-year-old sophomore at that high school. The sole suspect, they say, who opened fire at Oxford High School this afternoon, a few minutes before 1 o'clock. Authorities say they received some 100 911 calls. 25 agencies rushed to respond along with 60 ambulances. They're saying that in total, nine people were shot, three students killed, another six people, including possibly a teacher, injured. The suspect was taken into custody without incident, according to authorities. There is a deputy who is permanently stationed at that high school. Uh, That deputy was apparently helpful in assisting with the arrest of the student who is the suspected shooter. The whole thing lasting about five minutes from the time that those shots rang out. Authorities say some 15 to 20 shots were fired. It is not clear at this point what could have motivated the shooter. More details coming this afternoon, Dana. Alex, thank you so much for that report. And we will stay on this story as uh, developments come. Thanks again, Alex. And turning to our politics lead, a story you saw first on CNN, Trump's Former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is cooperating with the January 6th committee and 
is expected to appear for an interview. CNN's Paula Reed joins me now. So, Paula, what do we know about this deal and when he will appear? This is a really significant development for the committee. For Meadows to provide some documents and agree to sit for an initial interview, this is a dramatic shift in the relationship between the top Trump ally and House investigators. And of course, for Meadows, this means that the committee is not going to pursue criminal contempt proceedings against him for now. But that could come around again. As you know, this is delicate. And there's a big question about what exactly will happen in any potential interview. Will investigators actually get the answers to the questions they have? Because we've seen that Meadows' attorney has said they're trying to negotiate a way for Meadows to cooperate without having to waive executive privilege. Now, we know some members of the panel have said, look, they have plenty of questions for Meadows that have nothing to do with Trump. So there is a possibility that they could try to negotiate something here. But we heard Representative Adam Schiff say earlier today that he will assess the level of Meadows' cooperation after he testifies. So look, even a willingness to engage and to cooperate stands in stark contrast to another Trump advisor, of course, Steve Bannon, who is now facing criminal contempt charges. As you know, this is normally the way the process works. We'll see, though, where it actually leads. So interesting. Meadows, of course, a former member of Congress. I'm not sure if that has anything to do with it. Uh, But as all of this is happening, the former president's lawyers, they were at court today. They went before judges again in order to argue that certain documents should not be allowed to go before the January 6th committee, that they should be kept away. What did the judges say? The judges today, the three-judge appeals panel, they they appeared skeptical of this argument that Trump lawyers have made that the former president should be able to keep some of his records secret, even though the current president, President Biden, said no. He cites the extraordinary circumstances of January 6th and said, look, this is not what executive privilege is meant to protect. The committee should have access. But let's hear what one of the judges said about what's really at stake here. This all boils down to who decides. Who decides? when it's in the best interest of the United States to disclose presidential records. Is it the current occupant of the White House or the former? Look, there are a lot of really novel questions that are raised in this case. Trump lost at the lower court. Likely whatever happens here at the appellate court, this case is very likely going to be heading to the Supreme Court. Whether they take it up, well, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, beyond the actual substance of whether or not Congress is going to get to see these documents, which matters the most. There are all these precedent-setting decisions that uh, that courts are going to make. Thank you so much. Good to see you, Paula. Likewise. And President Biden today is hoping to remind Americans what he's accomplished. Is it enough? We'll talk to the man in charge of keeping Democrats in control of the House next. We're back with our politics lead. Any moment, President Biden is set to speak in Minnesota as he continues to tout the new infrastructure law. But here in Washington, there are new roadblocks to the rest of the Biden agenda, from a squabble among Democrats to uncertainty around the new COVID variant. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is traveling with the president in Rosemont, Minnesota. President Biden in Minnesota today, touting the benefits of the new infrastructure law suddenly overshadowed by the stubborn fight against coronavirus. The White House waiting to learn more about the new Omicron variant, but bracing for a potential threat to the nation's economic recovery, which Fed Chair Jerome Powell warned Congress of today. Greater concerns about the virus could reduce people's willingness to work in person, which would slow progress in the labor market and intensify 
supply chain disruptions. The president is urging caution, but not panic, as he travels to cities across the country, explaining how the $1 trillion infrastructure investment can improve the lives of Americans through new roads, bridges, broadband internet service, and more. The administration is also intensifying its push for the second piece of the president's economic agenda, still stuck in the Senate. At the same time, the White House is balancing a two-tiered crisis, rising COVID cases and inflation, both global challenges hitting close to home here in the U.S. This mutational profile is very different from other variants of interest and concern. And although some mutations are also found in Delta, this is not Delta. It's something different. The president set to deliver a comprehensive COVID strategy on Thursday. I'll be putting forward a detailed strategy outlining how we're going to fight COVID this winter, not with shutdowns or lockdowns, but with more widespread vaccinations, boosters, testing, and more. From New Hampshire to Michigan to Minnesota, the White House is working to boost the president's standing and that of other Democrats as he leads a sales pitch of a major bipartisan accomplishment that has eluded so many presidents before him. Today's visit is designed to show the job opportunities coming to communities across the country as the law begins to be implemented. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told lawmakers today there is bright economic news ahead. Our unemployment rate is at its lowest level since the start of the pandemic, and our economy is on pace to reach full employment two years faster than the Congressional Budget Office had estimated. Now, President Biden is set to focus on that bright news in the economy, trying to push this forward to get his agenda passed in the final month of this year. But Dana, I'm also told that the president was briefed a few moments ago on that shooting in Michigan. And that is the sad, somber event that he'll be talking about when he begins his comments here in just a few moments. Dana. That's unfortunate, but expected. Jeff Zeleny, thank you so much. Traveling with the president in Rosemount, Minnesota. And here to discuss is Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, who is in charge of getting Democrats elected to the House next year, holding on to the majority, uh, who told The Washington Post that the White House message right now on the Democrats' agenda isn't working. And I want to start there with you. Uh, The president is about to speak, as we just heard from Jeff Zeleny trying to sell the bipartisan infrastructure bill, look ahead to uh, the social safety net package he hopes will pass the Senate. So if the White House came to you and said, here, Mr. Chairman, write the speech that you think delivers the best message to help you keep the majority in the House, what would it be? Well, the reason I said free Joe Biden is that I think Joe Biden has the voice of working and middle class families like the ones so many of us grew up in. He understands what it's like for a family to struggle, what it's like to live the American dream if your country has your back. So I want him to be the messenger. And and so my plan would be get the president out there, put him with hard hats, put him on the factory floor. I love it when he's behind the wheel of a pickup truck or talking to families who are out there making ends meet. Uh, That's the voice of working middle class people that is the heart and soul of the democratic uh, agenda. You know, we are accomplishing real things that are gonna create jobs, grow our economy, end this pandemic, and move us forward as one country again. And I want the president out there communicating with the American public. Earlier this month, I spoke with Congressman Josh Gottheimer. I went to his New Jersey district, and as you know, he's a vulnerable Democratic member. I want you to listen to what he told me. How much do you hear from your constituents about 
their desire to get the social safety net and climate provision bill passed. You know, they don't talk about it um, as a bill. They talk about the parts of it, which, you know, I think we need to do too. And whether you're talking about um, uh, lower taxes or you're talking about pre-K or child care, when you talk about it that way to people, hey, those are all, all bipartisan things that Democrats and Republicans care about. You know, I think we've just gotten a little lost on, on how we talk about it. Is he right? Have you all gotten lost on how you talk about the agenda that you're trying to convince the American people is going to help them? Yeah, he is right. And, and the fact is, is that uh, we need to sit down and talk to people like you're at their kitchen table and, I, and tell them what it's going to mean in their lives. But, you know, the truth is, is it's not like we've been sitting around. We have been achieving these difficult, hard objectives. These are important pieces of legislation requiring almost unanimous support among the Democratic Party. And we've achieved that. First on the rescue plan, which saved our economy, millions of small businesses. Then on the infrastructure bill, which will create millions of jobs you can get with a high school education. Uh, ask the building trades what that means. People get that. And, and, and we're right on the cusp of passing the most important investments in our families. So you'll have cheaper childcare. So you'll be able to afford prescription drugs like insulin so that you can keep an elder uh, parent at home longer and, and more uh, affordably. Uh, those are real things that people get. But we've got to achieve these results. We've got to stick together to do that. I'm proud of the president, and I'm proud of my party for, for getting it done. And we're going to go tell people about it. So, as I don't need to tell you, it's about telling people about it. And the goal politically is to get voters to your side and get the, the base energized. And on that note, some progressives say the party has been too moderate to excite the base. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently told the New York Times, quote, there's all this focus on Democrats deliver, Democrats deliver, but are they delivering on the things that people are asking for the most right now? In communities like mine, the issues that people are loudest and feel most passionately about are the ones that the party is speaking to the least. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm not sure what she's referring to specifically, but I can tell you, when every three and four-year-old in America uh, gets to go to school, not daycare, school, uh, with universal pre-K, that's going to be popular everywhere. But in my district, talk to carpenters and, and, pl and plumbers, talk to, talk to steam fitters and iron workers. They'll tell you that infrastructure bill means good jobs for as far as the eye can see. If you talk to climate activists, I know uh, my friend Alexandria cares a lot about the climate. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a champion with her on that issue, I'd like to think. And the fact is we're doing the most important climate work that's ever been done right now in both the infrastructure bill and in uh, the Build Back Better bill. What's that mean? It means hundreds of thousands of charging stations built with good union labor for millions of new electric uh, vehicles, an electrified federal fleet. These are just some of the measures in that bill. Now, I know there, there's more we need to do. We need to protect the vote. We need to guarantee the right to vote. Uh, she may be talking about that, and we need to keep fighting for those things. She's right. But my goodness, give the president some credit. Give these Democratic majorities some credit. We have done big things, and we've done it with no margin to spare. And we're about to do one more big thing, and that's all in the first year. Right. And as you know, the question is, will voters give you credit? I know that is exactly what you were talking about today, is making sure that the message uh, is tailored so that people understand that. Thank you so much, Congressman. I appreciate it. My, my pleasure. And it's a feud that started between a Republican and a Democrat. Now it's escalated with a Republican congresswoman calling a GOP colleague, quote, trash, we're going to talk about what this means in the big picture next.
In our politics lead, a fight between progressive Democrat Ilhan Omar and conservative Republican Lauren Boebert, who made inflammatory anti-Muslim comments, jumped the aisle today and exploded on the right. Republican firebrand Marjorie Taylor Greene today butted in, defending Boebert, and called her conservative colleague Nancy Mace, quote, trash in the GOP conference after Mace condemned Roberts, uh, condemned Boebert's hateful comments on CNN Sunday. That's a lot to talk about. We're going to continue to discuss this. There's so much back and forth. It's kind of hard to keep track, but I will keep going. Uh, so Mace has been hitting back at Green all day. And I wanted to show a tweet where she, first of all, corrected uh, Green's spelling of your, said your, she wrote your without apostrophe R-E. Um, and then uh, Mace wrote, I'm a pro-life fiscal conservative who was attacked by the left all weekend, as I often am, as I defied China while in Taiwan. While I'm not as, while I, I'm not, is a, what I'm not is a religious bigot or racist, you might want to try that over there in your little league. She also tweeted this. We're going to put this up on the screen, and I think you can see what it is up there. Um, you see what it is? A bat and in the middle, I'll, I won't even say it, and then crazy. You got that? Um, and then she went on Fox Business noon this after, Fox Business, I should say, this afternoon and said this. Make no mistake, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a liar. She's crazy. She's insane. She's bad for the party. So I want to talk about this, not about the member on member and, frankly, woman on woman attack here, but about what this means about where we are right now in the discourse of politics. I feel like every time we have this conversation, we think this is the bottom of the barrel. And then suddenly the bottom drops even further. Right. Well, to me, the, the story here is what this says about the Republican Party, not just politics, right? Because these are arguments and fights that are happening within the Republican Party. Um, you're seeing this, you know, fringe. Well, they aren't really fringe anymore because they're coming, becoming more and more mainstream. Members like Marjorie Taylor Greene, members like Lauren Boebert, who either uh, throw out Islamophobic comments, uh, lies about election fraud, um, you know, you name it, and they are not held accountable by Minority Leader McCarthy. So that's what this is about, and it's a pattern that is repeating, and McCarthy still has yet to forcefully weigh in on this latest episode. Mm -hmm. uh, he is trying to kind of just handle things at the margins, and it's because of the fact that, you know, he's facing a choice, which is, does he uh, choose to just stay quiet and allow these members of the party to continue in this way because he knows that he wants to win the majority yeah. in the House? Or does he actually try to tell the Republican base, this is not the direction that we want to go? Well, we know the, the way that he's been yes. answering that question, and it's the former, not well, the latter. Well, he's afraid. I mean, he's afraid to lead, because if he leads the way he knows he should, I believe, um, it leads him away from Donald Trump. I mean, these are, these are people who are joined at the hip with Donald Trump. Donald Trump said, you know, Gosar is a great guy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is absolutely wonderful. And also, in the video that CNN revealed today of Boebert, she was speaking before an audience when she made those Islamophobic remarks mm -hmm. again, or the first time, I'm not mm -hmm. sure which it was, and they were laughing and applauding. Mm -hmm. They weren't horrified at what she exactly was saying. Right. They were saying, you go, you go, girl. So she had a great line, and she was going to use it over and over again. So she knows who her audience is, too. 
And so they want to win. He doesn't want to speak up. The Democrats don't want to get involved in that fight too much because it's not their fight. You know, Democrats fight over child care. <laughs> they're not calling each other names. Like right. I mean, they're basically fighting over who is the most Trumpy uh, yeah. right now. And I know, Alice, you spoke with Marjorie Taylor Greene just before coming on, and she told you about the conversation she had about this sort of battle with the former president, Donald Trump. Right. I just spoke with her, and she had a conversation with Trump uh, earlier this afternoon. She says uh, former President Trump is 100 percent behind her, and he's supportive of of what she's doing and the way she is engaging with fellow members of Congress, Democrat and Republican. And he also says with regard to uh, Congresswoman Mace, he is frustrated with how she has taken it to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And he told uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene that he would be happy to get involved in a primary fight against Congresswoman Mace in South Carolina. That is frustrating. Here we have two, in my view, very strong conservative uh, Republican women that should be working together instead of working to knock each other out, and it's not helpful to the party. Look, uh, Kevin McCarthy has uh, a lot more important things to do than separate the mean girls into their respective corners, but until he does that and puts them in timeout and tells them to stop that, we're going to continue to have these conversations. This does nothing to further Republicans, the constituents of these congresswomen. All it does is raise their national profile, help their fundraising, and it hurts the Republican Party. And what you just reported there that she claims that Trump said, which is that he would back a primary opponent against Nancy Mace, that's that's why, I mean, that's one of the main reasons we're having this discussion, because it is about the heart and soul of the Republican Party, which, to your dismay, Bill Kristol, is still firmly with Donald Trump. Yeah, that's even gone, as you said at the beginning, worse. It's more than just kind of kowtowing to Trump a little bit. We have school shooting in Michigan. Neither of them thinks it's inappropriate to say to have this insane and childish and embarrassing dispute on that day. God forbid they should actually say something about how you might have gun, mild, even mild gun control policies that stops a 15-year-old from taking a gun into a school and shooting his classmates and a teacher. God forbid they should say anything serious about the Omicron variant and about the virus. These are anti-vax. Marjorie Taylor Greene is an anti-vax Republican. I think Nancy Mace has been a little more qualified, but she's been no profile in courage either. God forbid they should have anything to say about public health policies. I mean, it's, it is beyond embarrassing at this point. I think one thing I think is important is with regard to Congressman Green. She says she's tired of what she calls the uniparty, the Republican Party, where everyone agrees with the same policies and no one really stands out for the real solid, hardcore conservative issues. Look, that like, works. Like the anti-vaccine? Exactly. What hardcore issue does Marjorie Taylor Green stand for? She, she, she Give me an example. Uh, certainly Donald Trump. She certainly is. A, is That's not, not an issue. That's a person. Well, she, in terms of the the. Solid course. She talks about uh, family values. She certainly talks about with regard to uh, limited government and uh, with regard to second. Yeah, but I, I want to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I, I, I'm, I'm not saying. Your, I no, no, you're not. You're not reporting on her. I understand. Reporting. No, I understand, Alice. But you are a, a more traditional conservative, and yeah. that really speaks to what we're talking about here. That conservatism. Is, is low taxes and maybe social conservatism, depending on where you are. And they're not debating that. No, they're r- debating right. whether or not people are loyal to Donald Trump. Right, because Donald Trump is not a conservative. You would agree with that, correct? Exactly. Donald Trump is not a conservative. Spends a lot of money, doesn't care about conservative issues. Donald Trump is about Donald Trump. Therefore, the party is now about Donald Trump and not about 
policy. We well, got to leave it there. The party. We got to leave it there. Thank you all for that uh, spirited discussion. <laughs> Appreciate it. And up next, a look at a drug all over America's streets with some users telling CNN they first tried meth when they were 11 years old. How many people you know do meth? Everyone. We're back now with the latest installment of our series, United States of Addiction, and what one drug user says, quote, actually fries your brain. Today, a look at meth, a highly addictive stimulant that can also cause long-term heart and brain damage, as well as violent behavior. And there's been a massive spike in deadly meth overdoses in the United States over the last year. CNN's Kyung Law takes a closer look. Fresno County Sheriff's Deputy Todd Burke. Hey, are you okay? Can you can you get out of the road, please? On his typical graveyard shift, digging away night after night. You're out here doing drugs. At a deadly national crisis. Out of the road, we're trying to help you. Something's causing her to panic and to be paranoid. That something is likely the drug law enforcement most often sees in this central California county. Methamphetamine. When's the last time you used? Very common for uh, meth users that smoke it. But this is also a common way to use methamphetamine is they inject it. This needle belongs to this driver. Your car's expired big time. This man says Deputy Burke can search his car. Got any needles in the car? And then talks to us about his addiction. He asked we don't show his face. Do you use a lot? Uh, I've been using a lot like on and off all the time, you know, since, like I said, 13. So Why'd you get started when you were 13? Well, I have an older brother who I looked up to, you know, and he just felt like that he wanted to introduce it to me, I guess. Of course, since I'm a kid, I'm going to say yes to my bigger brother, you know? And then from there on, it just took control. Would you say you're a meth user? Of course. I'm a drug addict. He'd been in and out of prison and says he just lost his job as a forklift driver that paid $25 an hour. He took meth just yesterday, worried about how he'd take care of his family. How old are your kids? Seven and five. And how old are you? 28. So I, I, I'm trying to stay straight so I can have my kids straight. How many people you know do meth? Everyone. You know, methamphetamine, it, it is such an addictive drug. They can't, they can't get rid of it. They can't stop it. There's, even if they want to stop it, they can't. Their body won't allow them to. Every single stop Deputy Burke makes on the shift... Ugh, you can't stop? ...involves meth. You're having a hard time? You need a program? Methamphetamine would be the number one drug used in Fresno... It's so easy to obtain. It's, it's not difficult. It's all over the streets out here. New CDC data shows meth is all over the country's streets, and it's getting worse. More than one in four overdose deaths this year involved meth and other psychostimulants. That's up nearly 50 percent from last year. In California, deaths were up 60 year-on-year. And in Fresno, no other drug, including fentanyl, comes even close to the death rate of meth. It's not the same dope. It's different. Former Department of Justice Special Agent Bob Pennell says dealers used to cook meth from ephedrine in super labs. We'd hit these labs and we'd see nothing but blister packs. You had to have pseudoephedrine, though. And the minute we stopped it, It was over. So now Mexican cartels use common chemical agents in mega labs. They're like Costco. They're just huge, huge industrial-sized buildings. So they're basically warehouses. And you can just manufacture it now at a much higher quantity. 
smuggled across the border as liquid, difficult to detect, means cheap prices. Hey, no warrants, right? No. And high supply impacting life across Fresno. It's not even meth anymore. Do you feel different on today's meth than the stuff that you More violent. More violent. More violent. John Chapman lives in the neighborhood Deputy Burke patrols. While he shares a common story... Oh, my God, I think I was 11, 11 and a half years old when I started. Who introduced it to you when you were 11? Well, I have to say my mom did. Your mom gave you meth. At age 55, he managed to quit. My legs will start spazzing and stuff like that from it. Because of the meth? Yeah. It gave me nerve damage. Um, What it does is it actually fries your brain. If you had kept going, what would have happened to you? I'd be dead. There's no life-saving antidote for meth overdoses. That's why Deputy Burke keeps pressing night after night. I want to see somebody who's constantly high on methamphetamine to change their life, become a productive citizen. I think they want it as well. Oh, you're all done? This is not a problem just in Fresno or in California. Eight states recorded higher meth overdose numbers in California, including Virginia, Massachusetts, and Mississippi. Dana? What an incredibly powerful and important piece. Thank you so much, Kyung. Appreciate it. And the Leeds United States of Addiction series continues tomorrow with Dr. Sanjay Gupta's look at a key tool to combat overdoses. Up next, one of the world's greatest golfers reveals his future plans. In our sports lead, Tiger Woods says his days of being a full-time golfer are officially over. The 82-time PGA Tour winner announcing at a press conference today that he does hope to play in some tournaments in the future, but as of now, He doesn't know how long it will take before he can make his professional return. Woods is still recovering from a horrific accident back in February when his SUV crossed a median, hit a tree, and rolled over. The last time Woods played competitively was in December of 2020 with his son, Charlie. I'm Dana Bash, in for Jake Tapper. Thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in The Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.